from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, this is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, March 30th. Today, how scammers targeted millions in pandemic aid, advice for vaccinated parents, and what we know about the origin of COVID. The Justice Department revealed at the end of March that they have charged 474 people over the past year with trying to steal more than $569 million through various criminal fraud schemes related to the coronavirus pandemic, and that they'd seized at least $580 million in civil proceedings connected to fraud schemes from one particular aid program. And all of this just really shows how susceptible these aid programs have become to scammers and how much fraud there is sort of targeting these government initiatives meant to ease the economic burden of the crisis. Matt Sapotosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. He spoke with audio producer Renny Svernovsky about what that investigation uncovered. So what programs are we talking about here that the scammers were able to take advantage of? There's really three that we're talking about. The first is the Paycheck Protection Program. People commonly know this as PPP. It was a way in the early days of the pandemic for businesses to get, you know, taxpayer subsidized loans to help them stay afloat as they were either forced to not let customers inside or, or forced to operate under less than ideal conditions. So the department has charged at least 120 people in connection with fraud targeting that. Another is a similar loan program called the Economic Injury Disaster Loans Program. Again, this is taxpayer funded loans meant to help people get by in the face of the pandemic. And this is the program that the department has seen quite a lot of fraud and seized $580 million Mm. in money that they suspect was stolen, though it's not connected to actual criminal charges. And then the third is just unemployment payments. So all of the coronavirus legislation, the CARES Act, the more recent Biden legislation has really swelled funding to unemployment benefits. And the department has seen just a massive amount of fraud with that. They didn't reveal a dollar number, but they've charged more than 140 people so far with with coronavirus related unemployment fraud. And not to inspire anybody, but how did they defraud these programs? It was in various sort of ways. So with the loan programs, particularly PPP, you would see a whole host of things. Some would just be businesses inflating their employees or their operations. So the way this program works is you would file an application for a loan and it would have to be approved. And the amount you got would depend on how many people you employ, how much your business usually does. So companies sometimes would exaggerate the number of employees they had. In some cases, people would sort of make up businesses and just apply for fictitious businesses that had no employees and get money that they would just spend on houses or cars or jewelry. And because in the early days of the pandemic, there was such this impetus to just get money out to places that were suffering, there was very little oversight on this. So you could just fill out paperwork and get your money. And and similar thing with the economic injury um, loan program. 
unemployment fraud. Um, you saw a lot of the same things that you would see in normal times, but you also saw kind of more sinister organized attempts to do this. So you would have foreign entities stealing people's identities and applying for benefits. You'd also have domestic scammers doing the same thing. Essentially, they would get a stolen identity, fill out an application, get these benefits that were meant for somebody else. That person might not have needed them, uh, and then they would just pocket the money. So really, there was a variety of ways that people went about this, all targeting the idea that there was maybe some lax oversight, particularly early in the pandemic when the government was just trying to get money desperately out to people who needed it. And and tell me a little bit more about that lax oversight. How did they get away with it and how were they ultimately caught? So let's focus on that for like the PPP program, right? This is supposed to help businesses kind of stay afloat. It was administered by the SBA, the Small Business Administration. How it works, though, again, is I'm a business owner. I file and say I have X number of employees. I need X amount of money. And then I'm approved and and a, a lender would hook me up with that money. Because there was so much money, though, flowing into this right away, and because the government really didn't want to be delaying getting this out. In other words, they didn't want to have somebody double-checking applications, doing site visits, that kind of thing. It was essentially up to the business to just certify, yes, I need this money. Yes, I am this size. Yes, what I am telling you is the truth. There wasn't a sort of rigorous enforcement or oversight program of that. There wasn't sort of inspectors going out to these places and saying, well, let me see all five employees who, who you have. How they figure this out, it's a variety of ways, right? One is that the banks who get involved to actually administer the loan might see something suspicious in the application and they would tip off the government, hey, this doesn't look right. You might have tipsters who know about fraud, you know, and in fact, the government, when they revealed kind of the totality of these numbers, they encouraged people, hey, if you know about somebody scamming one of these loan programs, let us know. And that's how a number of these cases came to be. The government also boasts about how it has pretty robust programs for analyzing data. They sort of mastered this in terms of healthcare fraud and the open opioid crisis and like seeing where data just doesn't look right and sort of peeling back the onion. Do we anticipate that there will be more of these charges, more people getting caught for this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the numbers are big even now, like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars is obviously a big amount, but the totality of these loan programs is trillions of dollars. We just had another relief bill, which included much more unemployment funding. So the fraud is certainly not going to stop. It's not like we didn't totally expect that this would happen when the government tries to get money in the hands of people who need it quickly and with little oversight there's always fraud. So we saw this with the 2008 TARP program, um, which doled out hundreds of billions of dollars. That office says that their investigations have seen the recovery of something like $11 billion in fraud. So now, of course, that's 2008, what we're, you know, 13 years from, from that moment now. But I think you'll see similar numbers in all of the coronavirus relief legislation. And who knows if it's over? It likely is not over. We likely have not seen the last of the the relief legislation. Whenever the government is pouring money into an effort like this, 
the scammers come out of the woodwork. And we've seen that so far. And certainly I think we'll, we'll keep seeing that with this new aid package. For the people who have been caught so far, what are their consequences going to be beyond just repaying the money? Yeah, it's not just repaying the money. They, they face criminal charges. So you have the civil forfeiture component of this, the $580 million. And that is just like the government snatched up this money and they'll now fight with people in court to say, hey, we want to possess that. But mm-hmm. for the people, the 474 people who have been charged, some of them will face prison time depending on the amount that they stole, you know, their own history. Um, some of these people whose fraud was relatively low level would probably just face probation. But some who who defrauded the government of millions and millions of dollars, maybe tens of millions of dollars, you know, there was just one case, the person I don't believe has been sentenced yet, but he pleaded guilty in Texas to trying to steal like $25 million mm. in loans by creating fake businesses. These people could actually go to prison and, and, you know, spend time in prison for what they did. And I imagine that the amount of money that they took out of the pool, they they took that away from businesses that were trying to get this aid legitimately. What what were the consequences of that? And, and what could the consequences be going forward? So I think when a lot of people see fraud, particularly that's fraud directed at the government, they see it almost like a victimless crime. Well, who cares? This is the government's mm-hmm. money. There, I think people just sort of don't see defrauding the government as a big crime. But I would say two things. One, that's taxpayer money, right? The government isn't independently running a business. That's that's your money and that's my money that, that is being stolen. So there, there's a, a victim component there. Two, for this unemployment fraud that I talked about, in some cases, there is a victim component in the person whose identity was stolen. That really complicates someone's life who had nothing to do with this, who now has to go about maybe repairing their credit, you know, maybe convincing the government, hey, I wasn't actually getting that money. I was going to work. This is a scammer. Mm -hmm. Um, Three, early in the pandemic, as they were trying to get money out, you know, there were limits on this thing, right? And as scammers come in and take big pots of money, that makes it so there is less available, particularly in the short term, for a business that might legitimately need it. And then more so in the long run, now the government lenders are really going to look harder at this and it's going to be harder to get money out more quickly. You know, people aren't going to want to race to get money in the hands of businesses that desperately need it because they're going to think, oh boy, like the last time we did this, there was hundreds of millions of dollars that just got swiped from us and maybe we need to move a little bit more slowly and cautiously. And that has negative effects, you know? Preventing fraud in a situation like this can slow down getting money in the hands of people who need it. So that's a potentially pernicious long-term effect, in addition to all these real immediate consequences for people and businesses that I sort of mentioned. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. Renny Svernofsky is an audio producer for Post Reports. So, Allison, I have a personal question for you. If my partner and I are fully vaccinated and we want to do the now lower risk activity of visiting another household whose adults are also fully vaccinated, can we bring our 
unvaccinated kids to visit with their unvaccinated kids? That's a really good question. And a lot of people are asking the same one. And it's a complicated risk calculation, to be honest, at this point. Allison Chu covers wellness for The Post. While adults, like you said, may be protected because of their vaccines, giving them a little bit more freedom to socialize or kind of engage in other routine activities, their children are not. And that leaves a lot of adults wondering, you know, what can I do with my kids or what can my kids do while they're waiting for these vaccines, which experts are estimating could really take anywhere from several months to a year, depending on which age group the child falls into. And and just to be clear, who or what agency makes these recommendations? Well, for now, a lot of experts have been pointing to the CDC and their guidelines and recommendations for what fully vaccinated people can do as kind of the the roadmap for what people should be following at this point. And for anyone who's looked at those guidelines, they've probably noticed that there aren't very specific recommendations for what can be done with social situations involving unvaccinated children. Okay, Allison, so break it down for us. What are the considerations And why is it still maybe not a good idea? Well, the first thing is that, you know, there are still risks. And although we do know at this point that kids have a lower chance of catching and spreading the coronavirus compared to adults or even, you know, their older counterparts like teenagers, they still haven't escaped this pandemic unscathed. There have been uh, more than 3 million cases of COVID in children that have been reported over the course of the pandemic. And we also have to remember that at this point in the pandemic, rates of community transmission are still high. And even though the authorized vaccines are incredibly effective at preventing severe disease, that doesn't necessarily translate to 100% total protection from getting infected. And children are not living in bubbles. You know, they are going with their parents to visit fully vaccinated relatives, and they're also returning to schools and daycare, where, again, risk can be low because the proper precautions are in place. But still in those situations, the risk is not non-existent. Mm. So what advice can you give to parents? I mean, for example, can I send my kids to camp? As experts have stressed time and time again, the pandemic has really been tough on kids and their mental health. And so we want to make sure that they are engaging in person with their friends and living life as normally as a kid would in non-pandemic times. And so that means, you know, planning play dates or thinking about birthday parties and summer camp. But obviously, you know, during a pandemic, those activities without any safety measures in place are or can be high risk. And so for parents, there are alternatives that they can do to still let their kids experience these events, but do so in a way that lowers the risk and is considered, you know, more safe. So, you know, when it comes to a play date or a birthday party, you know, ideally kids should be wearing masks and playing with a small group of their friends outside, especially as the weather warms up. And parents should also be thinking about 
are any of the relatives or people that the child is going to come into contact with a vulnerable or high risk? And that would factor into their decision as well about how to let their kids interact with others. And you can also lower the risk of indoor activities by, you know, keeping masks on and um, practicing uh, social distancing. It's interesting because this is something I've actively been thinking about. I mean, most years when it's not a pandemic, you know, I guess it's it's what, almost April now. And, mm-hmm. you know, my kids would have already been signed up for summer camp right. three months ago. Right. And now, you know, that more people are getting vaccinated and, you know, their school is now in a hybrid learning model, it seems Like, I'm very excited about the idea of maybe sending them to summer camp. And I'm I'm curious if there are any other recommendations that experts have been giving about summer camps. Yeah. So with summer camps, reports from the CDC have shown that uh, having stringent safety measures in place really does make a difference. And so we can look back at those reports and see that, you know, one of them was a sleepaway camp in Georgia that had some safety measures in place, but they didn't enforce universal masking. So only the staff had to wear masks and they did not follow the CDC's recommendations for kind of how to ventilate buildings. And they had an outbreak at the camp, you know, within days of the kids being there. Whereas at the same time, the CDC studied four sleepaway camps in Maine that had put in really stringent safety precautions, you know, such as having a quarantine period before and after the kids got to camp, doing symptom screening, testing, universal masking, all of that. And the CDC reported that those camps were able to really control the spread of coronavirus among more than a thousand campers and staff members. So experts are saying that the most important thing parents can do when thinking about summer camps is to, you know, ask these camps questions um, very similar to what they would be asking schools about, you know, what is the masking policy? um, What risk mitigation plans do you have? What's the protocol if someone does test positive? So these are questions that can help parents assess, you know, what camps are doing and whether they feel like it would be safe enough for their children to attend. As things start to change and as more adults are being vaccinated and able to do quote-unquote normal things, how do we explain to kids that it's not the same for them? It's something that experts say parents have been talking to their kids about for most of the pandemic. And the way that they recommend having these conversations is to be transparent and validate your children's feelings. You know, children are going to feel Uh, left out or jealous, you know, if they see their friends getting to do more activities with maybe less restrictions because that family made an individual risk calculation and decided that Mm -hmm. that was something they felt comfortable doing. Now, not all families are going to make the same risk calculation. And experts are saying, explaining to your kids the reasoning behind the decisions that you're making And acknowledging that it is a hard time, like it is not going to be easy and that if they feel angry or upset, that those are valid feelings to have because of the situation that they're in. And then once you move past that part of the conversation, it's important to offer your children alternatives to the things that they want to do. So asking them questions like, okay, so what is it that you're missing? And let's figure out how we can Mm. find a way to 
replace what you're missing with something that our family feels like would be a safer, more low risk thing for you to do. So an example would be if your child is jealous that his or her friends are hanging out together, then you can suggest something like, you know, how about you invite one or two friends to the park and you have a distanced, you know, masked play date um, with those kids. And do we know when we might know more about vaccines for kids and when they might get protection? So vaccine producers are working on trials involving younger people right now. And experts are hopeful that uh, the major companies like Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson could potentially have data on teenagers that can be submitted to the FDA soon with the hope that, you know, an authorized vaccine for teens could be available by the end of the summer. But for children who are younger than 12, unfortunately, that wait could be longer because trials have just started enrolling younger children this spring. And experts anticipate that there could be data by the end of the year, but it's much more likely that data might be available in early 2022. It's really important to remember that these recommendations and these guidelines are temporary. You know, as we learn more about the virus, as more people get vaccinated, as we get better control of the disease, things are going to change and guidance is going to be updated. And so the best thing that parents and children can do is remember that this isn't going to be the situation forever and to you know keep an open mind and to you know continue to have these discussions about safety while you know making sure that you remember at least for now that when you're dealing with unvaccinated people um, including children the recommendation is wearing masks staying socially distant uh, maintaining good hand hygiene because at this point in the pandemic we know that those strategies work in helping to contain the virus. Allison Chu covers wellness for The Post. The story was produced by Rennie Svernofsky. And now, one more thing. Hello, good evening, good afternoon, or good morning to everyone. My name is uh, Tarik Yasharevich, and I'm welcoming you to a press conference regarding the public. On Tuesday, the World Health Organization released a report on what the agency knows about the origins of the coronavirus. Thank you, Tarik, and welcome to this uh, press conference on uh, the result and outcome of the joint study. As you know, we went there as part of a long process that uh, uh, started uh, last summer where we agreed on the series of studies to be conducted. So the report is the WHO international team's first look at the origins of the coronavirus and the roots of this pandemic. That's Emily Rahala. She covers foreign affairs for The Post. What's really striking about the report is that it didn't reach firm conclusions. We're more than a year into this, and we still don't have really solid clues as to what happened. But what it does say is that the virus most likely jumped 
from an animal like a bat to an intermediate animal host and then made its way to humans. And it dismisses or casts as highly unlikely the idea that the virus emerged from a lab in Wuhan. One of the most interesting findings is that the market linked to some of the earliest cases, which some people had initially assumed was the source of the outbreak, was more likely or possibly just the site of a early outbreak or what they call an amplication event where the disease started to spread really rapidly. But I should note that there are questions about whether the scientists have as much data as they need to start working backwards and looking at cases before, say, early December. What are the outstanding questions that we still have? I mean, pretty much everything at this point. We don't know where the first cases happened, when they happened, who was infected. It's not clear which animal was the host. What a lot of the scientists are saying is this is really a starting point. And that's an answer that's going to be pretty unsatisfying for a public that is frustrated and eager for answers. But I think that's the answer that we're going to have to sit with at least until another team can get back and continue this research. And Emily, what can you tell me about this investigation? So the WHO doesn't even like to call it investigation. It's technically a joint scientific collaboration. Basically what that means, it's an international team composed of Chinese scientists and independent foreign scientists that was convened by the WHO. They waited more than a year to actually get to Wuhan and then had about two weeks on the ground touring some of the markets linked to early cases. They went to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and they also met with Chinese officials from the Chinese Centers for Disease Control. But I've also been hearing a lot of criticism about how this report came about. Can you unpack that for me? I mean, even before these scientists were on the ground, the idea of this mission has been dogged by questions about access. When would they get there? How much would they actually be able to see? Would the data presented by Chinese scientists be accurate and complete? A lot of this data was collected by Chinese scientists presumably with supervision from Chinese officials, and then it was analyzed by the joint team. So in some ways, it's a collaborative effort. In some ways, it's really an international team reviewing science conducted by Chinese scientists. And so that's raised a lot of questions, including Secretary of State Blinken on CNN. We've got real concerns about the methodology and the process that went into that report, including the fact that uh, the, the government in Beijing apparently helped uh, to write it, but let's see what comes out. And Emily, has the WHO publicly acknowledged some of these concerns about the methodology of this report? What surprised me about this report is that just ahead of its launch on Tuesday, the top official at the WHO, Dr. Tedros, issued what I think were probably his most critical remarks of China. He expressed concern about whether or not Chinese scientists had delivered raw data to the international team in a timely and comprehensive manner. And he even weighed in on the lab theory. He suggested that the analysis we've seen of the lab hypothesis so far might not be sufficient and went so far as to say that another team should go back and take a look. Those are some, <laughs> that's a pretty extreme statement to be making at the same time that a WHO appointed team is reporting on their findings. Exactly. It was a big departure from his usual tone. 
And I think what we see going on here is the WHO trying to find its place in a standoff that has come to draw in both China and the United States and their broader relationship. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post. The story was produced by me, Alexis Diao. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by senior producer Rena Flores. We are still looking for stories about reunions after vaccination, with proper safety precautions taken, of course. What are you looking forward to? A trip to see the grandparents? A visit to literally anywhere outside of your living room? We would love to hear from you. Send us a voice memo using the app on your phone and email it to us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.